Good evening. Uh, warm welcome to those of you who are here in the building and to those of you who are joining us online. I guess that one of the things that we really wouldn't want to know or really wouldn't want to uh, have is somebody who knew everything about us, particularly if we couldn't rely on them to keep their mouths shut. It's said that the biggest problem that bother many of our doctors is patients who are coming to them with a sense of guilt. This evening we're carrying on with our series in prayer and we're looking at uh, a prayer of a really guilty man. I know some people think that people who are in church and people who are relating to God are good people. Not like the rest of us. But that's not true, as those of you who are Christians will know. And as we look at the passage tonight, we'll see the prayer of a man who's guilty of really bad stuff. But the good news is for people like him and people like us, that the punishment's been taken, that the price has been paid, and that's why Christians make such a big deal about Jesus. And we're going to do that in our first hymn as we praise the one who paid the price and redeemed us, who bought us back, who paid the price for our sin. So let's stand and sing our first song.
pray. Oh Lord our God, we ask that you'll help us all to pray now. Help it, help it to sink into us that we, creatures, yes, creatures that you made in your image, but creatures who are a shattered image, who are a poor image, creatures who are, if we just saw a bit of ourselves right to be very ashamed, can come to the God who made everything, the God who will last forever, the God who controls this whole universe. And we know that we can only come because Jesus died to make a way that we could come to the pure and holy God of heaven. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to you even though you know us completely. You know our deepest thoughts, you know our darkest deeds. And yet, you call us to come to you. You tell us that if we confess our sins, you're you're faithful and reliable and fair and forgiving. And we only and never complete anything that we've done or never make any promise to pay for it because that would never be enough. We thank you that Jesus paid it all. We thank you that the price has been paid and that for everyone who comes to you, we are welcomed into your family that we're counted as if we'd never done anything wrong. We're promised that one day we'll be with you forever. One day we will know what it's like to be free from all that hateful, hurtful stuff that's in our lives. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to understand you more, to love you more, and to love other people more. Oh Lord, we live in a broken world. And Lord, we pray especially for those parts of this world where people are being attacked, where people are being killed, where people are being so badly treated and we think especially of those who are badly treated simply because they love you. Oh Lord we thank you that they are faithful. We thank you that for many of them they are such an example to us where they they still go to tell others of their great God, of their wonderful Saviour, even though that means literally risking their lives. Oh Lord, we pray especially that you will comfort the families of the Christian leaders who are in prison for you. 
be a father in a special way to those children whose dad's in prison, we ask. And we pray, Lord, that you will be with us in, in our difficulties. Help us to cast all our problems at your feet, knowing that you care about us and knowing like a good and perfect father that you are, you, you never give a bad gift to your children. Oh Lord, we thank you that you speak to us reliably. We thank you that we have your word to listen to. Oh Lord, we pray that you'll help us to hear what you're saying. We ask you'll help Mark as he, he brings your word to us and explains it. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us not to forget what we hear. We pray that it'll make a difference in our lives this week and beyond. Amen. Our next uh, song reminds us of just how good God is to us. And after that, Tim's going to come and read the Bible passage that we're looking at.
our reading this evening is from Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David wrote after he had been unfaithful with Bathsheba and betrayed and deceived her husband Uriah. So Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. So Mark's going to be teaching us from that passage after our next song. And our next song asks us a really good question. What sort of love is it? What sort of love is it that would forget our history? Not our good history, but the wrongs we've done. It's great that we come to a God who is willing to forget that. So let's stand and worship together.
Well, good evening again. It's good to see you all and welcome to those of you online as well. Last week, if you were here, uh, we saw Hannah praising God, uh, the God who turns the world upside down. So the rich become poor, the humble are lifted up and the proud are brought low, the dead are raised to life, the hungry are satisfied, he's able to make barren women uh, give birth. This is the pattern of how God operates, he turns the world upside down. And Hannah finished her prayer song, Uh, if you've got very good memories you may remember it, Uh, we looked at it briefly at the end of last week, verse 10 1 Samuel 1, the uh, sorry, 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And you may remember, if you've got a good memory, uh, that when Hannah prayed this, there was no king in the nation, didn't have a king. But in a few years' time, there would be a king. The people would choose a king. And they chose Saul. That was their choice. And uh, to put it nicely, he was a disaster. He was a, a great example of the proud being brought low. But then God chooses a king for the people. He now has his choice. King David. The specially selected king who he will give strength to, to crush his enemies. The king that he personally chooses to lead over his people. The one that he selects to be an example to his people of what he is like. And King David became a great king. God greatly blessed him. Uh, God looked after him through some incredibly dangerous situations. He defeated many enemies. He knew that God could be trusted uh, that God was good, he loved, uh, he loved God's law, he wrote many songs, he praised God continually, he's described as a man after God's own heart, he was a great king, God greatly blessed him. But then one year, the winter ends and the spring comes along, and we pick up the story, the background of Psalm 51 in 2 Samuel 11. It says this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The writer's setting this up for us. All the kings go out to battle in the spring, that's what they do. But David remains behind What happens? Well, many of you know the story. He sees a beautiful woman bathing, and despite being warned that this is someone's wife, he takes her and he sleeps with her. And then he sends her home. And the weeks go by. And then a messenger arrives with a note. And the note has three words on it. I am pregnant. I am pregnant. And you can imagine the colour draining from David's face as he reads it. But he doesn't hang around. He acts quickly. See, if he can get Uriah, the the husband, to sleep with his wife, then Uriah will just think it's his kid. So, he sends out a message 
to Joab and, and, and gets him to, um, to send Uriah back. Because the, the problem is, is that Uriah is not with David because Uriah is out fighting David's wars for him. So he sends out this message saying, call Uriah back and, and I want to ask him some questions. Chat to him a little bit. This is what it says in verse 7 to Samuel 11. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. You can imagine Uriah arriving and David offers him a drink and says, so how's it all going? How's Joab getting on? Is he well? Have you had any good victories? Tell me about them. Lovely, lovely conversation. Uriah might feel honoured. Well, Uriah can tell him that things are going well. We just read that they've ravaged the Ammonites, they've destroyed them, and now uh, they've besieged Rabbah. They're, they're, they're getting their victories. Things are, things are on the up. And you can imagine Uriah telling David this. Things are good. But David's not really listening. He's got other things on his mind. He doesn't really care about the war at this point. David says to him, well, thanks for telling me. Now go home. Relax. Wash. Spend some time with your wife. He even sends him away with a present. But Uriah doesn't go to his house. Why? Well, because... He says, how can I go home and spend time in luxury in my house when my fellow soldiers are living in the fields fighting? He was a man of honour. So David plots again. And he invites Uriah around for dinner. Now John this morning was talking about how horrific betrayal is. Especially when, when they're being nice to you. And they know that they're going to betray you. And I I couldn't help thinking about tonight. And just thinking, isn't David acting just like Judas here? Invites him round for dinner. He plies him with food and alcohol. It's a banquet he gives him. What an honour. But Uriah gets drunk. And it's all part of David's plan. But Uriah still refuses to go home. Even drunk, Uriah is a man of honour. And David at this point starts to panic. How is he going to cover this up? How is he going to explain all of this? And his plotting and his scheming gets even darker. He sends Uriah back to the army with a letter. And if Uriah had taken a sneak peek at the letter as he had been running back to the army, this is what he would have read. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. That's what he would have read. And Uriah obediently hands over his own death sentence to Joab. And Joab has his orders But here's the problem. Do you remember that they were besieging Rabbah? Now the problem with a siege is that you don't have the same war that you might do normally. There might be little skirmishes. But it's not the same sort of war that you get if two armies meet on the field. So what does Joab do? Well he does something that I think must have caused some serious eyebrow raising amongst his men and his soldiers. They must have been thinking, what is Joab doing? 
because he sends some of his men with Uriah at the middle right up to the city. And of course, what happens, some of the men of the city come out and a good number of David's men are killed. It was a suicide mission. It was foolish. And so Joab sends uh, a messenger to David to tell him the details. He says, tell him the details. Oh, and add that Uriah's dead. And is David angry that some of his best men have been killed in a foolish attack on a city? In a foolish way? No. David says to the messenger, well, these things happen in war. People die. Don't let Joab be discouraged. Encourage him. These things happen. And David turns around and he breathes a huge sigh of relief that finally... Uriah is out of the picture, and the cover-up is complete. But all the while, God has been watching. And God confronts David through Nathan the prophet. And finally, as David is face-to-face with what he's done, finally he sees clearly for the first time. And he simply says, I have sinned. I have sinned. And in his overwhelming guilt... He prays. Finally, he does what he should have done right back at the beginning. He takes his guilt to God. Now, I'm sure that our situations are different this evening. I hope that none of us have got blood on our hands in the same way that David did. But are you feeling guilty this evening? If you are, you're not alone. Maybe there are some things in your life that are secret that you'd quite like to stay secret. Maybe you've tried dealing with guilt yourself, but guilt's not easy to get rid of, is it? You've tried forgetting it, but it just kind of hangs around. If you're feeling guilty this evening, I want to invite you to join in with David's prayer as he prays tonight. Because if David's guilt after all that he did, if David's guilt can be dealt with, then we can have confidence that our guilt can be dealt with too. So, let's get on to David's prayer. Right from the start of David's prayer, we see that David knows his guilt. He knows his guilt Tonight we're going to be jumping around a little bit in Psalm 51, we're not going to go through it. Um, So if you want to follow along with kind of where I'm getting what I'm saying from, uh, you might want to have it open, make a bit more sense if you do. But you see at the beginning of his prayer, as he prays he confesses, and he confesses my transgressions, my iniquity and my sin. Different words, slightly different meanings, but David's just saying, my sin, out of every aspect of God's law, I've broken, I've failed in every single way. He knows full well that he's rebelled against God's laws. He knows he's done that. He knows that he's fallen short of God's standard, way short of God's standard. He knows that sin has got him in its grip, and he's followed it wherever it's taken him. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He can't get it out of his mind. It weighs heavily on him. Every single day, he's thinking about his guilt. He can't get rid of it. He says in verse 4, Against you, 
God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David isn't saying here that he hasn't sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and the other men and the families uh, that were killed. He knows what he's done to them, but but he's realising that on top of that, and, and even more significantly, he sinned against God. He knows that he's done evil in God's sight and that God has every right to judge him. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming his mum here. And he's also not saying that in some way the way his mum conceived him was sinful. He's not saying that. What he's doing is he's acknowledging that he's a sinner and he always has been. Now, one of the things you might have seen in the last, I think, particularly couple of years, there's been a lot of celebrity apology statements, haven't there? Seen a lot of these statements come out, people apologising. There's often a bit of a pattern to them. And one of the things that comes up time and time again is a phrase, something along the lines of this. That's not who I really am. I'm not like that as a person. It's often what you see. But David's realised something very different. This is what David says. He says, no, this is who I am. This has actually shown me this is who I am. I am broken. I am corrupt. Without the, without the goodness of God in my life, that is what I'm like. He knows he's got a corrupt heart. And he knows what God loves. We see in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David knows that God delights in truth and wisdom in, in the inner being. And what's in David's inner being? Where's well, lust? There's deception, deceit, murder. That's what David's heart is like. And so he cries out for mercy right at the start of his prayer. He says, have mercy on me, O God. He knows that he deserves the death penalty. In fact, he condemns himself. When Nathan confronts him, he actually says that himself. He he condemns himself to death. And so all he can do, the only plea he's got before God is mercy. David knew his guilt. And I wonder, do we feel our guilt? If we do, we need to confess it. To stop hiding it. We don't confess it to a a priest or a a church leader. Maybe very grateful for that. But we need to confess it to God. We need to admit that we've done wrong. No more cover-ups. No more hiding it. No more, that's not really me. We need to confess it all to God and understand that we are broken, that we are corrupt. Where you may feel, if you feel guilty, you may feel like coming to God is the very last thing you want to do. Why would I want to go to God? I feel guilty. Well, how does David dare come to God? After what David's done, how could David dare come before God? It's because he knows his God. He knows his God. This is the start of his prayer. 
Start of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. The only reason that David has the nerve to come before God is because he knows that God is a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. You know, in the Psalms alone, I believe that we find the phrase steadfast love, God's steadfast love, about 127 times. And the phrase abundant mercy or compassion at least 22 times. David knew well about God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. He knew God's character and now he just throws himself on God's mercy and God's love. David knows that God is a God who loves his people unconditionally. And I'm no Hebrew expert, I think most of you know that. But the original language gives this idea that that God loves David with the same love that a mother has for her unborn child that she longs for. It's the same sort of love. And it's the same sort of love that you see Jesus show. Do you remember when uh, when Jesus meets groups of people uh, that are suffering? Uh, there's one time when he, he sees them and they're like uh, sheep without a shepherd. And do you remember what it says about Jesus? It says he was moved with compassion. That's why we sung that song. Jesus is full of compassion. He's moved with compassion. It's a powerful phrase, isn't it? That's how David can come before God. That's why he can do it, because this is what God is like. Is God holy? Absolutely. Is God the judge? Yes. Why would you want to confess your sin to God? Because of his enduring love. And because of his overflowing mercy and compassion. But David doesn't finish there. He longs to be clean. Third heading, he longs to be clean. I'm sure most of you have experienced that feeling when you get filthy dirty, maybe you're covered in mud, and you just want to wash. And you have that shower, and afterwards you feel amazing. You're so fresh, you're so clean, you feel great. And David at this moment, he feels so dirty. He feels polluted. It's like he's so stained inside. And he begs God to clean him and to deal with his sin. And then he begs him again. And then he begs him again. So this is the second half of verse 1 and then verse 2. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Then verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purging is a sort of language you use to deal with infectious diseases. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David doesn't just want a sort of quick wash with a flannel. He doesn't want that cheap car valet that you can get. But it's a, sort of, it's a quick clean. He wants the intensive, deep cleaning Washing of God to get rid of the darkest stains on his heart. And he longs for his sins to be blotted out. He knows that they're recorded in God's book. All the wrongs are recorded in God's book and he longs for them to be blotted out. And he has hope in this because this is what God himself says in Isaiah 43. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. 
It's an amazing promise, isn't it? But how can, how can God, who is just, blot out sins? And how, how does that work? How is that fair on people like Uriah and the other men who died needlessly and their families? How's that, how's that fair? Well, this week I was doing a Bible study with one of the YPs and we're going through Colossians and we got to chapter 2. Great passage. Listen to this. It says, Though we were dead in our sins, God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But God doesn't forget our record of wrongs. But what he does is he takes it from us, as it were. It's as if he, he lifts it off our hearts and he nails it to the cross above Jesus. And so, so why could David have his sins blotted out? Well, because on the cross, Jesus was punished for those sins. Jesus was punished for lusting after Bathsheba. Jesus was punished for the deception and deceit. Jesus was punished for the blood that was on David's hands. It was transferred to his account. For those of you that were here this morning, it's as if Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that has David's name on it. You know, it's the same for us. If we come to God, Jesus can blot out our sins. He takes the record of our wrongs and he takes it to his cross, his own cross. And he drinks the the cup of wrath that really is ours. And he washes away our sin. He willingly takes on our guilt. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He wants to be completely clean, completely renewed from the inside out. That's his longing. Lastly, he longs to be restored. He longs to be restored. He says in verse 12 of Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He longs to have joy back in his life again. You see, that's what sin and guilt does. It robs us of joy. It takes away any joy that we have in God. It breaks our fellowship with him. In verse 8, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, uh, that you could put in instead of rejoice, there is dance. Let the bones that you have broken dance. In Psalm 38, another penitent psalm, David describes the impact that guilt's having on his body. And it's like, it's like a physical impact that guilt is having on his body. And he says this, he says, There's no health in my bones because of my sin. And then he says, I'm feeble and crushed. It's amazing, isn't it? This is the, this is the impact of guilt on his body. Maybe you've experienced that. You've been weighed down by guilt and it's made you feel like an old man or an old woman. 
David longs to be restored again. He wants to know joy. He wants to know energy again, vitality. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know, you can feel the tempo rising, can't you, as David starts rejoicing. Even in this prayer, you can feel the tempo rising. And as David is restored, as he comes back to praise, look at what happens. And I remember James Swanson preaching on this many, many years ago, and it has always stuck with me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. As David experiences the joy of forgiveness, so he will pass on that message of forgiveness to other people who have transgressed, other people who have sinned. You know, there's a very close connection between um, a grateful, joyful faith and an infectious faith. There's a very close connection between a, a grateful, joyful faith and an infectious faith. And if you don't feel that your faith is very infectious, if you're a Christian, could it possibly be that guilt is the reason? Notice how this this prayer is leading other people to grace and forgiveness 3,000 years or so after it was written. Even now, people are finding grace and forgiveness through David. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's as if David's lips have been glued together. His guilt has kind of super glued them shut. And for months he's been miserable. For months the, uh, the Psalms have just dried up. There's no praise coming out of his mouth. He can't, he's, he's shut. And he's miserable because of it. He says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. But David here isn't saying that God doesn't want their sacrifices. God was the one that gave them the sacrifices to give back to him. So God does want their sacrifices. So what is David saying here? Well, if you go back to the previous psalm, Psalm 50, God is speaking to his people and he's rebuking them. And he says to them, look, I'm not rebuking you because you're not doing sacrifices. In fact, God says, if anything, you're sacrificing to me constantly. It's just a continual sort of uh, run of sacrifices. But the problem is, is that what they were doing is they were sacrificing to God as if God was the one that was needy. As if God was the one that was hungry and they were feeding him. As if they were doing God a a favour. They were as if they were helping God out. And God wants them to understand, no, you are the needy ones. God gave them sacrifices so that they could come in their confession and their need to God to have a way to be forgiven. 
What, what God really wants is not so much the bulls and the, the goats on sacrifices, but he wants us to come to him in our neediness, knowing that he is the only one that can help us. Begging for him to help us and to give us joy. You know, it's very easy for us to fall into the same trap. We live under the new covenant now. We don't have to do sacrifices, and I, for one, am very grateful for that. But can't we come to church and almost feel like we're helping God? Almost like God's the one that needs us. So we go along as almost like our duty. God will be thankful for us going along. But we're the needy ones. We're the needy ones. The reason it's good to come to church is because we need God. That's why it's good to come. That's why we encourage you to come to church. Because we need God and it does us good to praise him. That's where we find true joy. That's why we love seeing a packed church. And that's what God delights in. People who come along to church to worship him because they know they need him. Who delight in his goodness and his mercy. You know, that's when true worship happens. That's when God is is truly pleased. That's when we know real joy. But I just want to finish with this. You know, David David didn't get away scot-free. The child that he had with Bathsheba died as a judgment from God. And the grief impacted David to the point where David almost lost his own life because of his grief. And the consequences of David's actions stayed with him for the rest of his life. You know, being... Forgiven by God isn't a ticket out of all of our consequences. Sadly, when we sin, especially if we hurt others, there are consequences. And they can bring a lot of misery and a lot of pain. And we need to remember that. But in the eyes of God, David was forgiven. His guilt was dealt with. And he was restored. And now through the grace of God, he's in God's presence singing his praises. Even someone that's done what David did. And you know, you can be restored too. You can have your guilt dealt with. Take it to God. Maybe go home tonight. If you've got a guilty conscience, go home and read this psalm. I've, I've kind of jumped around the psalm a little bit. I haven't covered every aspect of it. Maybe go home, read through it, and pray it for yourself. Say, God, this is my prayer now. Yes, David prayed it first, but this is my prayer. And pray that God makes makes you so full of joy that you burst into praise. That would be a good thing to pray. Pray that God makes you so full of joy that you burst into praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are shocked by what David did. Lord, he was 
uh, a king specially selected, specially anointed by you. He was described as a man after God's own heart, and yet, Lord, we see the depths that he went to. We see the evil that he did. And yet, Lord, we see that your mercy was greater still. Your love goes deeper than his evil. And we thank you for that. Because, Lord, we too are like David. Lord, we too are corrupt. Lord, without you, our hearts are evil. Lord, we might not like to admit it, but, Lord, they are. And, Lord, I pray for anyone who has a guilty conscience this evening. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would be able to read this psalm. That they would confess their sin to you. And that like David, they would be able to go away praising your wonderful name. That they would be filled with a joy that is so infectious that they praise you and they go and tell others about you. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Lord, each and every single one of us, Lord, needs your love and your mercy. And so we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing. You can probably guess why I chose this one to finish. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Let's stand when the music starts and sing.
Lord God, we thank you for the word that we've heard tonight. And Lord, we thank you what we've found out about you. And Lord, I pray that your word would not be snatched from us as we leave this place. Do be with us, do keep us, change us, mould us to be more like you, I pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.